the cloth mask group had significantly higher rates of influenza-like illness. Hi, this is Alice. This is Shafali. You're listening to Pete's Admin. So this week, we're sitting back down with our resident COVID expert, Dr. Marisu Rueda-Altes. Hello, guys. Well, I wouldn't call myself an expert. I actually prefer the term official COVID-19 correspondent. I love that. <laughs> Happy to be with you guys. So as you guys all may know, the situation with COVID is changing rapidly, and things have definitely become a little bit more intense this week with increasing number of cases in the United States, increasing numbers of deaths. And we understand that people might be stressed out, concerned, all of the above. Our goal today is really to empower you guys by giving you the information that we think you need to know and keep you guys as updated as possible as you guys are working so hard. All right. So let's start with the latest WHO morbidity and mortality report. This today is March 28th, 2020, and this is from March 27th, 2020. We have globally 509,000 confirmed cases, 23,000 deaths. And in the past 24 hours alone, from March 27th to March 28th, there have been 46,000 confirmed cases and 2,500 deaths. So as Shafali said, escalating quickly. The other thing to note this week, a big change in the global dynamic, the U.S. is becoming the epicenter of this pandemic. We have now surpassed all other countries in terms of numbers of confirmed cases. Yesterday, some big news out of Washington, D.C. We got this on our AAP advocacy team email. They sent out a capital checkup, which detailed the $2 trillion stimulus bill that Congress passed in response to the COVID pandemic. That included $100 billion for PPE specifically and $150 billion for overall COVID-19 response activities. So I agree. So much new information out there. One important piece of key information was the Seattle Children's Grand Rounds. They shared all their information with us and a very special grand rounds with multiple different experts. And they talked about their experience facing COVID in different settings like the ER, their laboratory approach, and as well as some options for treatment and management. So the first thing that they touched upon, and I think we're all starting to feel this, is the laboratory testing difficulties as they try to make their testing more widespread. On a larger scale, they have faced many shortages, including reagents, swabs, among some other instruments that they use for testing. Another important key point that they touched upon was that uh, sore throat in children for them seems to be the most common presenting symptom. And from data that they've gathered from adult patients, since there hasn't, there hasn't been many cases of severe disease in children, day seven seems to be kind of the turning point. So when patients start to develop more severe symptoms like respiratory distress. So we would expect things to still progress. Yeah, we were just talking about that earlier, how allergy symptoms seem to be a big confounder, especially when you're encountering a bunch of healthcare workers that leave the hospital, we're starting spring season, where all the allergies kind of start to come up. Those have been a big point of confusion when it comes to who needs to be tested and who doesn't and who truly has COVID-19 disease symptoms compared to just seasonal allergies, right? Right, absolutely. So before you panic, if you're starting to develop a little bit of a a little bit of a sniffle, consider taking your Zyrtec or Claritin. <laughs> we have not been sponsored by any drug companies. <laughs> Another, I believe, important point of discussion actually was a question from our Chief of Infectious Diseases, Dr. DiBiase. She asked the Seattle people the question about co-infection. 
and what are the rates of co-infection that they're seeing and which viruses are they that they're seeing that have been presenting at the same time as COVID-19 disease. And they mentioned that Korea and China had seen some correlation with influenza and RSV, especially with influenza, up to 10% of cases were co-infected with both flu and COVID-19. However, for Seattle patients, the only co-infection that they had seen was with rhinoenterovirus. So that kind of falls into place with what we've seen in our institution, in which at least up to last week, we were doing respiratory panel PCR. And if it was positive for anything that wasn't rhinoenterovirus, we were kind of stopping right there with our testing. And if it was positive only for rhinoenterovirus, then we went doing further or, or negative or just positive for rhinoenterovirus, we're doing further COVID testing. Right. And we know that rhinoentero specifically can stay positive for months after infection and complete resolution. And, and we see positive rhinoentero swabs all the time. So another important update to last week's discussion. Last week, we talked about a study of nine uh, infants that were born to mothers with COVID-19 infections that at that point in time, we didn't think there was necessarily concern for vertical transmission or in utero infection. More specifically, there are three more studies out this past week. It's important to note that all of these are very, very, very small sample sizes and small cohorts of patients. But the important things to note is that coronavirus IgM, which does not cross the placenta, but coronavirus IgM was detected in babies who were born to mothers with known COVID-19 infections. And it was detected within two hours after birth. So typically, that would be inconsistent with an infection that would have occurred after birth. So that definitely suggests to us that these infants potentially were infected in utero and had mounted a response by developing their own IgM. And it's important to note, as Shafali just mentioned, these are very early case report studies, and it's hard to make conclusions from them. Another potential source of infection can be breast milk. However, the study that you mentioned last week with a few patients where they tested their breast milk that was negative for, uh, for viral PCR, so to detect the actual RNA of the virus. So that decreases the chances of infection being transmitted through breast milk as well. And um, in terms of where did the IgM come from, what I remember and kind of know about breast milk is that breast milk has got the maternal IgA in it. And this is why we say it, you know, can help protect the infant. But I would really have to know more about this to make a conclusive statement. Yes. And it's definitely important to know that there was another article that um, had detected SARS-CoV-2 IgM two days after birth. So in that case, we don't actually know if it's a vertical transmission or if those babies were infected after they were born. We definitely need more information on this. I think the takeaway point here is that we all as pediatricians and pediatric residents work with babies extensively in the newborn nursery and the NICU, it's important to keep this in mind as the number of infected pregnant women is going up in the country. And also as an important consideration for babies that present for sepsis rollouts as well. So just thinking, not thinking only about bacterial infection and the regular RBPCR, but that COVID could be a potential etiology for their symptoms. So let's talk about some other big changes since the last episode. So another topic that they touched upon in the Seattle Grand Rounds was that there's no approved treatment so far, neither for adults, not for children, nothing that has been officially recommended uh, by any of the large scale institutions. So big news out of New York this week, they have approved plasma transfusions from in patients who were infected and have recovered from COVID-19 infections to be given to critically ill COVID-19 patients. There's not a ton of evidence out there, it's important to note. 
But we do have a little bit of information from the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s. This had been used at that point in time in critically ill patients and, again, had variably been shown to lead to clinical improvement. We have a hot off the press article that we wanted to discuss with you today. All right. So to review, this is called convalescent plasma. So it's a patient infected by the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and now they've got SARS-CoV-2 IgG. So in a March 27th prelim communication in JAMA titled Treatment of Five Critically Ill Patients with COVID-19 with Convalescent Plasma by Dr. Shen and two colleagues, did report that it showed an improvement of clinical status. So she had five patients. All of them were already ventilated and all of them had received IV methylpred as part of the initial respiratory failure treatment. None of them were smokers. Four out of five of them had no pre-existing conditions and four out of five of them got ritonavir and lapinavir and, and four out of five of them got interferon alpha. So they noted radiographic clinical and lab marker improvement. These patients also were critically ill. They had the kitchen sink thrown at them in terms of treatment. And we, there's, I don't really think there's a way to know for sure that this is the thing that worked. That's a key thing to mention, Alice, because most of the, st- the studies that are out there about treatment, we're talking about critically ill adult patients. Every single treatment is thrown at them. You are, have just mentioned a lot of the things that we're currently studying towards being an approved treatment for COVID-19, like viral drugs, interferon alpha, steroids. So who is to tell that which one of those actually worked or which combination actually worked best? So what's happening right now when we think about hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine as treatment? So chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, they are, they are heme polymerase inhibitors. They have antiviral effects by interrupting viral and cell fusion. They've also been shown to decrease the cytokine response in critically ill patients and kind of reduce the overall inflammatory response to COVID. Yeah, so clinically efficacy data has been very limited for both of these drugs. There was, I think the, the main study that talks about actual clinical outcomes was an open-label, non-randomized study with 36 patients. Similar similar setting as what Alice mentioned before, patients that had gotten steroids, interferon alpha, and a bunch of other concomitant treatments. So hard to tell which one of the drugs was the one that actually had some effect in them. The good thing about both chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine is that they're drugs that have a good safety profile. So currently, they are the most promising and the most widely studied drugs where like everyone's just trying to find a way to prove that they're actually effective. So we can use them as standard of care, not only for treatment of severe patients, but actually also as post-exposure prophylaxis for healthcare providers which could be an interesting way of getting more of our frontline workers back in the trenches as soon as possible. The most important side effect that both hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine have is QTC prolongation. So something that we have to watch for, especially in patients and healthcare workers that might potentially receive this treatment that have underlying uh, heart conditions. There are two active clinical trials going on right now that are currently recruiting. One of them is in the United States, and it's specifically studying pre- and post-exposure prophylaxis. So that is kind of interesting. Oh, wow. No, that's exciting. Yeah. Uh, There are some other new drugs that are also currently being studied. I won't go deep into them, but remdesivir, which is an Ebola experimental drug. So it's not even approved for Ebola. Uh, There's a couple of protocols and it can be obtained both for adult and um, pediatric patients for compassionate use. Then there's tocilizumab, which is a recombinant humanized monoclonal antibody. And some other drugs like azithromycin that are currently also being studied for their um, anti-inflammatory properties. 
all in all, it's important to mention that most children, because of the mild quality of the disease that is affecting them, will likely not require these treatments. But we have to keep them in mind, mostly for immunocompromised patients and the ones that have other kinds of risk factors, like chronic lung disease or cyanotic congenital heart disease, that will most likely be more severely affected by this infection. What are we thinking about steroids? It seems like some of the critically infected patients have been given them, but overall, are we routinely recommending them? So it looks like not right now in terms of coronavirus positive give steroids, but it's I think it's a broader conversation in terms of ARDS treatment. And apparently NSAIDs, there's some talk about them not being recommended. Overall, I don't think there's any official statements yet. So they're still game. You can still use them to control fever and, and other kinds of symptomatology in COVID-19 patients. So let's dive into the hot topic this week, which is personal protective equipment or PPE. Just start off really broadly, what are the updated and most recent general PPE guidelines at most institutions? So I think for us as residents, it's a very important question to ask what to do. You're in the ER or you're the admitting resident, you have a patient that's coming and they have symptoms that are suggestive of coronavirus, COVID-19 disease. So most institutions, what they're doing right now is if you have a fever plus respiratory symptoms and you have a close contact with confirmed or suspected COVID-19 disease, then you are getting all thrown at you. You are going to be in a room with contact, droplet, precautions, eye protection, and trying to minimize the use of aerosolized procedures. In the case that aerosolized procedures are needed, then this droplet precaution would shift to an airborne precaution. If you have a patient that has confirmed coronavirus infection, then precautions immediately shift to airborne precautions. And this patient should also be placed into a negative pressure room. So that's another important consideration. When we think about PPE and we think about infection control, uh, sometimes we kind of focus on the protective equipment, but also environmental conditions are very important to protect everyone that's around the patient and the other patients that are in the same unit. So just to touch back on the patients who are still undergoing a rule out, we want to minimize using aerosolizing procedures in these patients. And I want to just run through the list of what these include. So aerosolizing procedures, things that'll spray off the very smallest particles. Uh, so bronchoscopy, of course, also BiPAP, CPAP, high flow nasal cannula, endotracheal intubation and extubation. So when you're actually doing the intubation, extubation, changing of any tracheostomy or tracheostomy suctioning, mechanical ventilation, random cannula and nebulizer treatments, which is our most common. Another potential aerosolizing procedure is actually sampling as well. When you're thinking about nasopharyngeal, but also oropharyngeal sampling, most providers are concerned that this might be aerosolizing as well. So airborne precautions, including the N95 mask, are required for this. An interesting thing that they mentioned in the news recently is that another important aerosolizing procedure that we are doing so much in these last few days is sampling. So when you're getting samples from the nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal sources, so those are potentially procedures that will have the patient cough, sneeze, even cry, and that can cause aerosols that can increase your risk for contracting infection. So making sure that you have all the airborne precautions, equipment, including eye protection and everything before you're doing all this is very important. Another key point is when it comes to sampling, there's actually been some evidence that you can obtain just as effective sampling for detecting COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 just by getting a mid-turbinate sample done by a healthcare worker, which is 
just like putting the tip of the swab in the patient's nose and not having to go all the way back to the nasal pharynx. And that for children can be less traumatic and it can also give you a less of a risk for aerosol production and it can be equally effective for detecting RNA. So the key thing is just to check what the best sampling method is for the protocols that exist at your institution, but just keep all this evidence in mind. And then just to close this all off, it's important to clarify what does not lead to aerosolization. So two things really quickly. Routine nasal and oral suctioning does not increase risk of aerosolization. And while when you're sampling a patient and you are right in front of their face, if they do cough or sneeze on you, that definitely is is increasing your risk of infection. Coughing and sneezing of a patient who's in a room and otherwise not surrounded by other people should not lead to aerosolization of the virus. So I think the the last thing to just note in the PPE discussion here is we are at a critical shortage just nationwide uh, on top of everything. I think just making sure that we are conserving PPE where possible, but also protecting ourselves adequately. And because of this national shortage of PPE, a question that I've gotten from families, friends, something that the nation cares deeply about is can they make cloth masks and will the cloth masks be effective in preventing transmission? Shafali, what do we know about this? Great. So we are referencing here an article titled A Cluster Randomized Trial of Cloth Masks Compared with Medical Masks in Healthcare Workers. First, Arthur McIntyre et al. published in 2015. This was a large, with a sample size of over 1,600 subjects, randomized control trial examining the use of cloth masks versus medical masks or surgical masks, as we refer to them, versus a control arm. This control arm practiced standard precautions based on their institution. So this included a kind of a mix of some surgical masks, some cloth masks, and a few who actually did not wear any masks at all. Overall, the endpoint of this trial was clinical respiratory illness. So this would be respiratory symptoms or some respiratory and systemic symptoms as well as influenza-like illness, which was defined as fever with respiratory symptoms, or a lab-confirmed respiratory viral infection. So that would be like a respiratory viral PCR that was positive for a virus. Overall compliance in this trial, so compliance was defined as use of a mask for 70% or more of the work shift hours. Um, overall compliance, they found that surgical mask wearers, fifty about 57% of them were compliant. Cloth mask wearers, again, about 57% of them were compliant. And then the control group where they were sort of doing, they found was standard, were significantly less compliant. About 24% of them um, used their PPE appropriately. And I think the bottom line to take away in this study is that the cloth mask group had significantly higher rates of influenza-like illness and lab-confirmed virus as compared to the surgical mask group. It's also important to note that the rate of influenza-like illness was significantly higher in the cloth mask arm of the study compared to the control arm. So when we compare do whatever you want, use a surgical or don't, but protect yourself to please wear this cloth mask at all times, the do whatever you want group still had a lower rate of infection. Exactly, which is pretty surprising. I think it's important to actually go through why cloth masks are really not effective. And it's a couple of things. First of all, if you think about using like a cotton cloth, you have a lot of moisture retention in that piece of cloth. Tend to reuse them more in, in terms of the ability to throw it away. In cloth mask cases, you are responsible for washing, cleaning, and switching out your own mask versus surgical masks, which you don't have to deal with. And then there is a certain amount of pore filtration that allows for increased risk of infection that you, you don't get typically when you use a surgical mask. So larger particles can fit through the cloth mask. So yeah, more particles are definitely being transmitted through cloth masks. The same study showed that transmission and penetration of viral particles was 97% when using cloth masks compared to medical masks, which was only 44%. 
And the reason we're mentioning this is, as you all know, the CDC has very recently loosened their guidelines to say that it is appropriate for healthcare workers in this time of PPE shortage to use cloth masks if nothing else is available to protect themselves. So we think it's important to note that while they are loosening these restrictions, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's effective or going to protect us. It's a, a deep third line agent, really. Exactly. Now, in terms of our community helping us and protecting each other, Marcy, you had mentioned that perhaps infected patients with no access to surgical masks should wear a cloth mask. Can you speak more about this? Yeah. So when I read the study that Shefali just mentioned and kind of asked myself, okay, great. Definitely cloth masks are not better than surgical masks, but are they better than no mask at all? So there's another study that we'll share with you guys that basically compared in a controlled lab setting. It's very important that we mention this because just take it with a grain of salt, how generalizable it is for our daily living. They compared no mask at all with a surgical mask with different material um, homemade masks and how were this preventing the spread of pathogens from patients coughing and sneezing uh, into the masks. And they actually found that both surgical masks and homemade masks were statistically significantly better than no mask at all in preventing the spread of the infection from infected patients. Of course, the surgical masks were markedly superior than homemade masks. I think it was like three times more effective in preventing the spread of the infection. However, they say that as a last as a last resource, if no surgical masks are available, homemade masks will be better than just not wearing anything at all. All right. So those are the latest COVID-19 updates from this week. Let's move towards a personal protective equipment review and deep dive. Marisu, what do you consider to be PPE? So this is a definition that I found in OSHA, which uh, is our Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And they define personal protective equipment as equipment worn to minimize exposure to hazards that cause serious workplace injuries and illnesses. And it may include things like gloves, safety glasses, um, shoes, earplugs, and muffs, uh, including also hard hats, respirators, and coveralls. So this is not only something that applies to healthcare workers, but actually to all kinds of workers, including construction workers and other people that do high-risk labor. And then just to review terminology, I want to clarify that donning is when you put on the PPE and doffing is when you take off the PPE. And we're going to get into this later, but studies have shown that the the main problem point when it comes to transmission of infections despite using PPE happens in the doffing phase when you're taking it off. Marisu, what do you consider to be standard precautions? Standard precautions are what healthcare workers use for every single patient that comes to the hospital. And it most of it is most of it is very intuitive. So standard precautions should be used when there is likely to be exposure to blood and all other body fluids, including secretions, excretions, and whether or not they contain visible blood. We're working in pediatrics, so secretions are basically all over the place. <laughs> So also this includes when we're going to be in contact with non-intact skin and also mucous membranes. These include things that are as basic as hand hygiene, cough etiquette, not just for the patients, but also for their providers, and when to wear gloves, gowns for specific exposures and procedures. So for example, if you do an LP, standard precautions will tell you that you have to wear gloves and a mask and a surgical cap just to make sure that you minimize exposure of the patient to your infections and vice versa. And now let's discuss some transmission-based precautions. So this is where we start to get into contact, droplet, and airborne, right? 
Exactly, Alice. So transmission-based precautions are actually also known as empiric precautions. And it's mainly because we start to apply them from the first contact that we have with the patient. And it's based on what the patient's symptoms are, how we determine which kind of precautions they need to have and we need to take when we are taking care of them. As you mentioned before, they include contact, droplet, and airborne precautions. All precautions should be ordered at the time of initial contact with the patient. Another important thing to mention is that Contact droplet and airborne precautions should always be in addition to standard precautions. So hand washing, cough etiquette, and all the standard precautions for procedures should happen regardless of the level of transmission-based precautions that the patient has. For contact precautions, what does it entail? What are you protecting yourself from? So most infectious agents are transmitted by contact route via the hands of the healthcare providers. So the usage of protective equipment like waterproof gowns and gloves is usually what we know as contact precautions. And when do we specifically use contact precautions? So you must have seen contact precautions when you're seeing patients with gastrointestinal illness. So diseases that are transmitted via the fecal-oral route is a big, big point in which we use contract precautions. Also, skin processes like abscesses and some other draining lesions like herpes simplex and even localized zoster that can cause some vesicles, those would also warrant contract precautions. And then it's important to note that some respiratory viruses, you can protect from them just by using contract precautions. So RSV and parainfluenza are transmitted mostly by contact and not necessarily too much by droplet. So once you have confirmed that the patient has this kind of viral infection, droplet precautions can be discontinued. You can just stick with contract precautions. So RSV and paraflu only contact because the virus isn't getting into the air. It can So it's important to clarify, RSV and paraflu can be transmitted via the droplet route as well. But as you mentioned, the main mode of transmission is still contact. So overall, contact precautions are the big the big things to keep on for these patients. And the other place we're seeing contact precautions in hospitals is when patients are colonized with multidrug resistant bacteria. So these are our MRSA colonized patients. These are our VRE colonized patients. And Marsu, this has been, this is sort of a topic of conversation whether or not they should always be on contact precaution if they're MRSA positive. Can you talk more about this? Yeah, there's some controversy on what is the actual benefit and are we actually just wasting personal protective equipment by using this in MRSA positive patients or VRE or KPC patients. So to do a quick deep dive into this controversy, we're going to discuss a paper from the American Journal of Infection Control from March 2018 by Dr. Mara et al. It is called Discontinuing Contact Precautions for Multidrug-Resistant Organisms. It was a systematic literature review and meta-analysis. So it really dug deep into whether contact precautions were basically useful in preventing MRSA and VRE spread in non-outbreak settings. They looked at 14 studies, and they concluded basically that discontinuing contact precautions for MRSA and VRE patients have not been associated with increased infection rates. So potentially in these cases, we're actually not really preventing the spread of infection and we're potentially wasting PPE. Yeah, another important consideration when it comes to contact precautions is that when a patient requires a transmission-based precaution, we're trying to keep them in a separate personal room as opposed to a shared room. But one thing that the um, pediatric textbook infection prevention control mentions is that you can even maybe cluster patients that have similar infections, like same pathogen or same resistant bug, and put them in the same room in case you're having some room shortages. But it also involves not only personal protective equipment, 
treatment, but also environmental measures that you can take for preventing the spread of these infections. Okay. So when it comes to multidrug resistant infections, this is something to just keep an eye out for the new guidelines, and we're sure it's going to be a discussion. So why are we using them now in the time of COVID-19? So as we have talked in the previous episode, diarrheal illness is a big component of COVID-19, especially in children. So uh, that would be one point. Second is that mo- the Manual for Infection Control in Pediatrics mentions that infants and young children pretty much have contact with everything and you cannot control how much they're going to touch you or like want to hug you or drool on everything. So they just basically recommend contact precautions in most situations when it comes to infectious diseases. Ah, uh, drooling, slobbering children. It's, it's why we love pediatrics, but it's also why they are tiny little vectors for infection. Let's move on to droplet precautions. So Marisu, what, what does droplet precautions, what does that actually entail? What are you protecting yourself from? So the droplet route transmission requires exposure of your mucous membranes to uh, large respiratory droplets. And those are uh, the size of those are larger than five micrometers. And it, it basically within one to two meters, which is the equivalent of three to six feet of the infected individual. And this, this one may be coughing or sneezing. The actual droplet precautions involve wearing a mask before or upon entry to the patient room. And this is a big difference when it comes to airborne, when airborne always has to be done before you enter a patient room. Actually, with droplet, you can actually put it on upon entry to the patient room. And for infants and young children, it includes, as I mentioned before, contact precautions almost 100% of the time as well. Specifically, what types of masks are we using when we say droplet precautions? When we're saying droplet precautions, we're mainly talking about surgical masks. So either the um, ear loop masks or the ones that you tie behind your head. And you had mentioned viral respiratory illnesses. When, when do we specifically use droplet precautions? So this is a, a, a main territory for all viral respiratory illnesses. So mostly adenovirus, influenza virus, and rhinovirus are transmitted primarily throughout the droplet route. So they're also transmitted by contact, but mostly by the droplet route. So when you have those respiratory patients and you are, and it's clinically indicated to send an RBPCR, if you confirm any of these infections, it would be a good idea to keep the droplet precautions on throughout the rest of the hospitalization of that patient. But it's not only limited to respiratory viruses, some bacteria like Neisseria meningitis infection would also be infectious through the droplet route up to 24 hours after antibiotics have been started. So there's a bacteria we can we can kill with antibiotics, uh, but we do need droplet precautions for the first day. And then just to continue on the pattern that we've been doing in the time of COVID-19, why are we using droplet precautions? So I, I, I think that that's pretty intuitive as well. COVID is a viral respiratory illness, influenza-like disease. So there's a big route of spread through droplets. So this, is, this should be standard precautions in the, from the beginning in contact with any kind of respiratory patient. This, of course, although we all know you guys know this, is where the six feet apart guidance comes from. It's from the idea that this is primarily spread through droplet transmission. So droplet precautions, not only in the hospital, but everywhere. Okay, let's transition to airborne precautions and airborne transmission. How, what is, how is this different from droplet? What does it entail? What are we protecting ourselves from? So we just talked about droplets and how droplets, this, the, how the cutoff point for the size of a droplet is larger than five uh, microns. Droplets can actually be as big as 30 to 50 microns in size, which is about the diameter of a human hair. Airborne is actually particles that are smaller than five microns, and those can pass through the small filters of the 
surgical masks and uh, be of high risk of infecting the patient. So in this kind of cases, in, in cases of diseases that produce particles that are this small, we use masks that are special called the N95 masks that will give you an extra uh, layer of protection. The actual N95 name means that the mask blocks about 95% of particles that are 0.3 microns in size or larger. And it has to be contingent on the mask actually being fitted to the face. Yes. And that's the FDA requirement for an N95 mask. So if you go on the website of an N95's company's mask, they'll likely advertise that their masks block 99.9% of particles that are perhaps 0.1 microns in size or larger. And that's great. We hope that they're exceeding FDA's expectations. What are the specific pathogens that we're worried about for airborne transmission? So when we're going into airborne territory, we're talking about pathogens like anthrax, tuberculosis, measles, varicella, those that kind of are a little bit more scary than what we were talking before, just plain respiratory illnesses. Also, we talked about localized cluster before in immunocompetent patients. But when you have patients that are immunocompromised and have disseminated herpes cluster, then those will be eligible for airborne precautions as well. So if it's a localized herpes zoster infection, it's a rash. The virus is infecting a section of the skin, but if it's disseminated, then maybe it's going into the lungs and then getting out into the air. Exactly. So just to add a little bit more nuance to this and to complicate matters more, I guess, in influenza as well as SARS-CoV-1, and now we're seeing in SARS-CoV-2 as well, it's important to note that these in general are transmitted via droplet, but can be aerosolized and become airborne. So just like with SARS-CoV-2, if you're using nebulizer treatments, intubation, et cetera, et cetera, in a patient with influenza or, you know, the original SARS virus, that would be something to think about, that you need airborne precautions. And now, what's the story behind negative pressure rooms? This is something that I get confused a lot, uh, and I think it's important to clarify. What are positive pressure rooms? What are negative pressure rooms? What are they used for? So starting with the ones that we won't talk about as much, positive pressure rooms are the ones that maintain a a higher pressure inside the treated area uh, than that of the surrounding environment. So that means that air can leave the room without circulating back in. Uh, In this way, any airborne particle that originates in the room will be filtered out and germs, particles, and other potential contaminants of the surrounding environment will not enter the room. So this is used in medical settings for patients that are immunocompromised and at risk for infection. So you can keep everything just outside. In contrast, negative pressure rooms actually uses a lower air pressure to allow outside air into the segregated environment, so into the patient's room. And this traps and keeps potentially harmful particles within the negative pressure room by preventing internal air from leaving the actual patient's space. And negative pressure rooms in medical facilities isolates patients with potentially life-threatening infections from infecting everyone else around them and outside the room. And there's like a little pressure, there's like a little plastic pressure valve thing that you can sort of see above the patient's door. And that's like an indicator as to whether it is one and whether it's on or not. And then just talking more about airborne transmission, what else can affect airborne transmission? So temperature, humidity, rainfall, the amount of sunshine, wind, human behavior, and tropical storms, all of this can affect how infectious a virus remains that and a virus that's transmitted by air, the airborne route. So higher temperatures are inhibitory, but humidity actually propagates airborne viruses more. And the thought is they have formed sort of like a a vapor uh, coating around them that allows them to transmit 
farther longer and remain infectious. So this is kind of interesting because you think about tropical countries have a combination of both. <laughs> they are both humid. They are also very hot. Um, and so the the amount of transmission and the degree of transmission can definitely vary based on like small changes in the environment. The amount of sunshine definitely affects how infectious a virus is because ultraviolet rays are inhibitory overall to viruses and bacteria. So if they're exposed to a lot of UV, that could potentially limit how how far and how long they last. And then I think other things, there's wind patterns, tropical storms, all of those. I mean, it's definitely nitty gritty details, but they can affect transmission as well. Human behavior, and I think this is important because you can actually have aerosolization of viruses from fecal oral route. If there, if you have feces that's just sitting there, that can lead to aerosolization of those particles and then lead to infection, which has been seen in the original SARS outbreak as well as MERS, I believe. Wait, that is truly fascinating. Yeah, and I, I think it also affects how like different environments, how like compared to the US, maybe countries in South America or Africa or in other parts of the world will approach precautions when it comes to what access patients have to sanitary conditions to actually having plumbing plumbing infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. So that that's so interesting. I had never heard of that before. So let's get into it because there are a million types of masks out there, and we see certain types of masks at work, but we all know that when you go to the grocery store, you can buy different types of masks. Let's actually talk about what these are, what they're made of, when we use them. Are they actually useful? Alice, take it away. All right. So when we think about masks, this is PPE, not just for healthcare providers, but for really anybody that might be breathing stuff in. Masks are made to fit certain specifications or specs, and these are just the physical measurements that they have to meet. So that's pore size, how big are the pores in the material and what can get through, and then does it seal well around your face? It's all about minimizing the pore size while allowing the user to breathe and also minimizing gaps between the mask and the face because it doesn't matter how big the pores are if you've got a half an inch sort of around your face and nose. If you can't get the pores small enough to minimize transmission of the particles in the air through the mask without losing air exchange, then you need to use a respirator or something that's giving you air from an external source or filtered air. Awesome. So when we talk about the surgical mask that we all are very familiar with, how are they made and what do they actually protect us against? They cover a layer of textiles with a non-woven bonded fabric on both sides. Um, and this, this fabric is effective at filtering out particles like bacteria or viral droplets above one micron. So pretty effective, but not as effective as N95s or respirators, which we mentioned before, the name is derived from the fact that they block out at least 95% of very small particles. And by very small, we mean 0.3 microns or less. Yes. So just to review the different types of masks, we've got the N95, which filters at least 95% of airborne particles, the surgical N95, which has been approved as a surgical mask, the N99, that filters at least 99% of airborne particles, and the N100, which filters 99.97% of airborne particles. The N mask series is not resistant to oil, but there's an R series that's somewhat resistant to oil and a P series that's strongly resistant to oil. Um, there's an R100 that's also filtering 95% and a P100 um, that's filtering 99.97%. Now, in the medical field, we don't get exposed to much aerosolized oil, but this is a significant concern for people working elsewhere. So 
So I think this all circles back to the point that you do not need to wear a mask if you don't have the infection. And this is not going to protect you from getting the infection. But if you are sick and you have symptoms, wearing any kind of protective equipment to protect those around you will be the smart thing to do. But not wasting masks and just wearing them when you have no symptoms whatsoever because they won't give you any kind of additional protection. And if you are socially distancing appropriately and giving yourself that six feet wherever possible, you you really should be fine and you shouldn't really have to worry. Let's move into respirators in general because these are kind of confusing. There are a few different types. Um, we've heard about the PAPR as well. So what are the different types of respirators? Oh, my gosh. I was maybe the first person ever to be fascinated by an OSHA training video. Um, so the different types of respirators for all employees uh, that might be breathing things in. So there's air purifying respirators where you use filter cartridges or canisters that sort of really remove the contaminants of the air that you're about to breathe in. There are atmosphere supplying respirators that provide you with a clean air source from an uncontaminated source. So that's, these are the people with like an oxygen tank and a tube feeding into their respirator. And then so another important thing to note is that a respirator is either loose fitting or tight fitting. And my interpretation of this is that the tight fitting ones really seal against your skin and the loose fitting ones are like more of a whole head situation. Let's talk about PAPRs. So PAPR is P-A-P-R, stands for Powered Air Purifying Respirator. And some of us may have seen these at work with our friends who have beards because they have to use PAPRs. So what is it? It uses a blower to pass contaminated air through a HEPA filter, which removes the contaminant and then supplies purified air into a face piece. And then the face piece is what you see them wearing and they look very intense and they look like they're suited up for hazmat purposes. <laughs> um, so just to break down what HEPA filters are, because you'll hear this both in medicine and in real life. Um, HEPA stands for High Efficiency Particulate Absorbing Filters, and they basically push air through a stack of materials to effectively trap these air particles and purify them. Important to note that all of this uh, PPE, as we mentioned before, is in shortage. So one measure that they've taken in our program is to very nicely ask all of our beard friends to have N95 compliant beards and mustaches. So we've had a very interesting parade of different <laughs> kinds of facial hair, and uh, it has been very interesting. The mustache dies when coronavirus dies. So just to wrap this conversation up, PPE... It can be a little cumbersome, but it's super important to protect us, especially in the time of this pandemic. We thought we'd review some common pitfalls that we see with PPE. So we're going to start off by looking at a study, Use of Personal Protective Equipment Among Healthcare Personnel, Results of Clinical Observations and Simulations. This is by uh, first author Kang et al. So this was a study out of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC. They basically looked at healthcare providers in 130 simulation sessions, how they use personal protective equipment. And Shivali, what did they do here and what did they find? Great question. So a number of healthcare providers were videotaped while using PPE. And then a smaller subset of the initial group was brought back for a second session after they got feedback on their use from the first session. So... They looked at 130 total sessions that included 65 total participants. And again, this was a combination of nurses, physicians, respiratory therapists, lots of different types of healthcare providers. 
they found that contamination occurred in 79.2% of simulations during the doffing process, just further emphasizing that this is the this is the point of breakdown for most people when we're taking off our PPE. We're just ripping it off after we see a patient. And then they, again, like I said, they gave some of these participants some feedback and brought them back for a second simulation session. And after they got the feedback and did the second session, they found that 82% of these people still had contamination in the second time. Oh my gosh, the doffing, when you're ripping it off to leave the room, I, I, I'm I, not going to say I don't relate to those healthcare providers in a time before COVID. I agree. Those modules that we have to do every year are just so cumbersome and sometimes we kind of just swift through them. But at least now that we're presented with a true actual risk, it kind of puts things into perspective and, I don't know, tells us that we have to pay attention to this teaching sessions because the risk for contamination is just so high when you're taking off this protective equipment. Yes. And this is a life-threatening pandemic and I'm going back. I'm watching the OSHA videos. I think another thing that it's important to keep in mind is just you can always use the buddy system and have your coworkers observe you putting them on and taking it off and do the same for them just to make sure that everyone is being as compliant and as safe as possible. Yes. If you have a spotter, they can point out areas of potential contamination. And that makes sense right now. Uh, we as pediatric providers are not seeing the high volumes that adult providers are. So a lot of us are having body calling clinic or on the floors, and we don't have the same amount of patients that we normally do. So taking the opportunity to just at least for one of the patients that we have to put our personal protective equipment on, having someone watch us do it, I think it would be definitely very useful. And our thoughts go out to the adult medical providers, specifically in New York and other epicenters of COVID-19. We can't imagine what you're going through. Yeah, just to echo that, we all have friends who went into internal medicine who are practicing all over the country. It's just been really tough to hear about what they're going through and and really what patients are going through. This has just been a really tough week, I think, for the country. Um, We wanted to close off by discussing some of the ways that you can help or get involved in more of the advocacy efforts. And these have all been overall sponsored by the American Academy of Pediatrics. So there are larger movements going on across the country. Um, So number one is using the hashtag GetMePPE. This is an important movement. I mean, we did get some funding yesterday from the stimulus bill, but This is not going to change the fact that we are at a critical shortage nationwide, and it may take some time for all this funding to actually lead to increased amounts of PPE in the hospital. So doing what you can, continuing to petition. There is a change.org petition that healthcare providers are signing to also bolster funding for this effort. Other things to think about there, most hospitals are doing PPE drives or donations. We're still having people donate their personal stashes or supplies if they have any, and Uh, Many medical centers are actually accepting cloth mask donations at this time as well. That is more of a local thing and different hospitals have different protocols, but just knowing that it's out there. Other things to think about. One of the big changes that I think we've all observed in the past week is that telemedicine has been really taking off in all of our healthcare systems and even trickling down to the residents. Residents have been involved in virtual appointments. This is definitely one of those things that I think is going to really see a surge now and then after this pandemic is over. It's important to note that the insurance companies really haven't caught up necessarily to telemedicine. So the AAP is actively advocating for immediate changes to Medicaid, CHIP, and private insurers so that pediatricians can adequately provide and be compensated appropriately for their telehealth services. Again, keeping in touch with the AAP and also all the other nationwide advocacy efforts, something that you can do to stay involved. 
Yeah, so just to summarize the key points that we want you guys to take away from this episode, I think one is personal protective equipment when used appropriately, when fitted well, and when taken off in a correct manner can safely protect you from contracting patients when you're treating children and adult patients with COVID-19 disease, that we are a critical shortage and we have to do as much as we can to use this equipment that we have left very smartly. And then finally, that patient care is moving towards telemedicine. So advocating as residents, not only for this to get reimbursed, but actually also to get trained into it. Because as we become full-blown attendings, we have to know how to do this so we can continue this trend of um, keeping patients safe at home. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Again, we hope that more information comes out. We hope that we'll have answers to a lot of these questions here and stay safe. The situation is changing rapidly. If you have any thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, things you want to contribute from your own institutions, please, please, please reach out to us. Email us at pedsadmit at gmail.com. Visit us at pedsadmit.com. Reach out to us via Twitter, Instagram, whatever form of communication works best for you. But we really want to hear from you. And we will try to keep you guys updated as much as possible as well. And we'll see you next time.